now there's the added thing that many schools are businesses. So actually, who are the primary stakeholders? It's not the children. When people say the system isn't working, that's not strictly true. The system really is working, but it's not there primarily for the benefit of the children. And in my less generous days, I think that the system takes our goodwill, that we want the best for our children. It takes that and it manipulates it. And it uses that to keep our children in childcare so we can keep working and keep the economic system going. Welcome back to About Learning. I'm Stan Pinsent. In a perhaps quite naive way, I've always marvelled at how hypocritical we are. The things we do align so poorly with the things we believe, or at least the things we say we believe. History shows us that people are apt to get swept along by the culture around them. Very rare are those people who act on their beliefs, even when it comes at a personal cost. Today I'm speaking to Mei Ling Thomas about integrity. Mei Ling home-educates her children. That already sets her apart, but when I met her I could tell. This is someone who navigates by her own compass. She's turning her back on all of the stress, frustration and worry that parents are expected to feel these days, and she's clearly reaping the benefits. Her superpower is something you could call integrity. But what is integrity? How, as a parent or as a teacher, can one have integrity in a society which is pushing and pulling us in so many directions? Mei Ling and I agree on a lot, but in this conversation you'll hear me looking for areas of contention. I bring my rational thinking, Mei Ling brings a more spiritual approach. I hope you'll find that these two sources of light help illuminate what is one of my favourite topics, integrity. Let's begin. Hello, Mei Ling. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> so you are a mother of two and you're very interested in education. Um, and I'd say you actually have quite an unusual backstory. Can you just quickly tell us about yourself? Well, I used to have a very conventional life. I worked um, in a head office in IT. Um, but when we decided to home educate, um, that changed everything. And in fact, my husband and I no longer work in full-time jobs. And two and a half years ago, we decided that we didn't want to live in London anymore. And we moved to an ashram in India. An ashram is like a an intentional community. Um, and that was just at the time of COVID. So then we were stuck there for two years, which actually worked out really nicely for us. And now we're back in London and we've fallen into this kind of commune here where the families all have shared gardens and, and live in this really lovely, connected way. So, yes, I home-educate my kids, and we always have since the beginning. Like We were lucky to, to be exposed to the idea that it was possible before my children were of school age. Um, and so philosophically, we were totally down with unschooling. It made so much sense to us. It, was, it felt very organic. Um, and part of that process of 
moving towards home educating no longer being part of the mainstream system um, was kind of an isolation, right? It was a kind of moving out from society and, and taking stock and thinking what's important to us. Mm. But then I don't think that's the end of the process for us. Then there was this definite move before, just before COVID of actually how do we exist in society? How do we integrate in society? In society? How can we be true to ourselves and what's important to us and still be part of a community? You know, not as outsiders. And because I think that is a theme that has plagued my entire life of feeling like an outsider. Um, and at university, I definitely had some critical points of, what the hell am I doing with my life? Why am I trying to please other people? But what do I really want? And I didn't know. And there wasn't enough support at the time for me to really kind of go into those questions. So then I carried on doing what I thought people wanted of me in this way where, you know, you're sort of half aware of it, but not really. Not enough to do something about it, not enough to have a choice. Hmm. Wow, that's, yeah, that's quite a sad story so far. <laughs> you play a little violin for me. <laughs> so you've, you became an adult, still somewhat doing what people expected of you. I get the feeling that now you're living much more your own life. Yes. What changed? What changed? I had children. Um, this was such a cliche, isn't it? But it, it was like I could spend my whole life being self-centered, right? And thinking about me. And actually, the more I was preoccupied with myself, the worse it felt. And the more you can think bad things about yourself, right? Without it being checked by reality. Um, and when I had children, I was somewhat more focused on my children. And that provided me with this other space of realizing, ah, maybe the things that I see as innate in my child, maybe I can give myself the benefit of the doubt that that's innate in me too. Mm. You know, maybe if I've been reading all this stuff that tells me I can trust my child and that their feelings are okay and that they can communicate with me, not just, oh, I'm really tired, I'm crying, but subtle things of I'm happy, I'm sad, I don't feel safe here. It's like if I can see that in my child through my experience, that must be true for me too. Um... And it's okay for me to think, okay, I need to control my behaviour around my child because I don't want them to have me yelling at them. At the same time, there was this dawning realisation that, and if I do that in a way that's really violent on myself, like internally, my child was also experiencing that. And so there was like this integrity, you know, of, okay, my child is absorbing everything, not just what I'm saying, but how I'm being. And if how I'm being is conflicted inside she's going to take that on too. Yeah. So I have this responsibility, right, to not do that anymore mm. and to really try and be what it is that I'm saying to her is the right way to be. So integrity has become a lot more important to you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, and it has become the thing. Over and above, you know, like what I think is good. And that for me is really key. Like the more and more we home educating the more I see I don't care for standards I don't care for what I for my ambitions you know for my children because there's this element of if what I think she should be doing in the future is not aligned with how she is right now what's the point you know because it just puts me and her in opposition with what is right now 
And so this sort of integrity thing um, is very much about, but right now, what, what feels like the right thing to do? regardless of whether or not it means okay she won't end up being a doctor or something and if you come from a Chinese family you know there's a big emphasis on on our kids becoming doctors or accountants um, and so to have that freedom to sort of say it doesn't matter really what job you have it really doesn't matter and it really doesn't matter what you achieve with your life as long as you are in integrity with yourself in this moment with what's going on then the rest is okay. So you're showing your kids that integrity is more important than ambition. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which How does do... which doesn't mean I don't think about the future, right? And yeah. it doesn't mean that I don't have ideas about how it could be better. Mm -hmm. um, but I found that if I try and hold myself to those better ideas, the me that's here right now ends up being unhappy and ends up feeling not enough. Because, you know, how could I possibly solve the climate crisis all, all on my own shoulders? Yeah, don't you worry that if you do manage to raise a child who's full of integrity, they're not going to make it in this world where you need to be hard-nosed and ambitious? <laughs> well, is that true? I, I don't know. I look around and I see that people don't show integrity and our society is based on the assumption that everyone's going to act for themselves. And, yeah, there is an element of people who do the right thing maybe getting taken advantage of mm. what does it feel like to let go of ambitions for your child wonderful <laughs> <laughs> because the only thing that really causes me to feel unhappy is when my expectations are not met right I expect that this situation is going to make me happy I expect that the behavior of my children is going to reflect well on me and it's like, if I let go of those ex expectations, there's nothing wrong. Mm. And if there's nothing wrong, then actually there's everything right. Yeah. You know, and it's, and it's definitely a change of view. Like I was definitely more of this, I need to make things happen. It's my responsibility. Um, therefore, I have to struggle. And therefore, I have to constantly do. And, mm. you know, as a new parent, especially, I think, in, in this, um, in a, British society, I want to say Western, but it's, that doesn't really work quite. But in, in this kind of society, um, all of us mothers are anxious about doing a good job. Yeah. And to the detriment of us actually doing the job. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's because of those ideas that there is a best way to do it or a better way to do it, that we are no longer present in the moment where we can really respond to what's happening. Like, I have so much more faith now in myself being able to respond in the moment. I'm with you, I think, on the first part, which is if you want to be happy, it's easier to change your expectations than change the world to meet them. And I think I've been seeing this in a lot of areas of life, that people are putting too much effort into trying to make their life fit their preconceived notion of what's good. Mm -hmm. And it's not a very effective way of actually being happier. Mm -hmm. uh, like to take a crude example just people who want to earn more money because they think they'll have a better life typically once they've got that more money they still want the next thing and the next thing because they've not changed the fundamental mindset which is I need more to be happy Right. and it's much easier than to change that mindset and be like actually I'm going to appreciate what I have and think less about upping it so I'm with you on that even when it comes to, to raising a child sure like change your expectations 
get rid of your expectations and just go with who your child is. But your second claim is that that also makes you better in the role of a parent. And I'm not saying I disagree. I just think I remain to be, and I suspect <laughs> listeners remain to be convinced. As a teacher, we're often reminded that we need to have high expectations for our children. Hmm. Low expectations are blamed for things like discrepancies in attainment between rich and poor or different ethnic groups. And, you know, so we're often told that having low expectations for certain groups is a form of oppression. But then you're saying that the opposite of high expectations is low. And I'm saying the opposite of high expectations is none. Well, if I had no... I know you're not a teacher, so you're maybe not going to tell me how to be a teacher, but you could try. As a teacher, if I have no expectations for my year 10 maths class, they probably won't do any maths. Well, then this is... This is the problem with school, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Because you are working within a system. So I'm sorry, you have to play by the rules of the, that game. Yeah. But I'm not in that game. So I get to play by different rules. And I have a different frame, right? I don't just have that one hour teaching with those kids. I have my life with my children. And so it's not we need to tick off this objective in this one bit because otherwise you're going to fail this system that you've elected to be in. The game that we're playing is very different. It's actually, you know, whether you decide to take GCSEs or not, because exams at 16 seems to be something we do in this country, but no one else really sees value in it. It's like, that seems irrelevant to me. If my child is um, free to follow her own sense of what is good for her, then she's learning mm -hmm. and she's learning whether or not that time it was correct or what information she missed out on that might have informed a different decision. She's making lots of decisions that are small in the big scheme of things but are informing her own sense of how did I feel about that? What did that mean for me? How did that affect the people around me? She's not separate from that feedback mechanism, right? And to me, that seems really important. It's like, what else can you rely on to govern you in a, in a situation of high stress or high pressure if you can't rely on your own sense of what should I do in this moment? You can't rely on anyone else. You know, and like you said, our system, increasingly the examples of people not having any in integrity, not having a spine to be able to say, I did that wrong and I'm sorry, I resign. <laughs> you know, that just doesn't seem to be happening anymore. You make it sound very passive, the way you talk about your children, you're letting them make their own decisions. I think a lot of other parents would see what, what you're doing in home educating your children as very actively active. You're actively shutting down their opportunity to be like everybody else by going to school, <laughs> doing the GCSEs, <laughs> participating in public life. So they would say, well, what gives you the right to make this huge decision on behalf of your children not to engage with mainstream education? I think that's a really good question. You know, I have been thinking this week a lot about when you become a parent, you know, there's this biological thing that happens where you become a parent. And that's not something that anyone really has control over. You know, as much as you might want to conceive a child, as much as you want to raise a child, there are decisions that just aren't in the realm of the human mind. And I think we've lost sight of that. 
I think we've lost sight of the fact that we are animals and we think. But we are, you know, we have this material form and I can't do anything about that. You know, now I am their mother. So now as their mother, what is my responsibility? And definitely people have different answers for that, right? And I had a different answer for that in the beginning too. I thought, okay, I need to shape my children so that they can be successful. I need to show them how to operate in this world. And I have more experience and I know more than they do. And and it's true that I have more experience. It does, it's not necessarily true that I was always paying attention to my experience. Um, but this idea that I should know what what they need, I mean, also to some extent that is true. But just because I know doesn't mean that I should push them in that direction. You know, so my job, right, is as a coach. And when you coach someone, you have this high regard for the other person. You know that they can figure things out for themselves and you're not there to give them the answers. Even if you think you know what they are, you're there to facilitate them in their own journey because the most valuable thing for them is to know how to navigate the world by themselves or to know when they need help and when to rely on other people. And that's much more valuable, right, for them to realise for themselves than for me to go, oh, I think you should do this. And they go, oh, yeah, because it hasn't happened from within them. And so there's still this kind of reliance on someone else to highlight the wisdom that they actually have themselves. And I see children exactly the same way. It's, it, I could say, do you know, based on my experience, it would be easier if you got the qualifications, did this, learnt how to be like this. But who am I to say whether that is what they're here for? Well, one could say that this is their childhood, they only get one shot at it, and perhaps it's your responsibility to intervene if you see them going the wrong way, because they're not going to get this time again. So don't you have a responsibility to keep them on track by coercion if necessary. Well, what do you mean by on track? Well, again, someone might argue that really as a parent, your job is to deliver them into adulthood with the most doors open to them. It's this idea of education for an open future. So by not sending your children to school, you're closing doors. They are not studying certain subjects that are available in school. They are not going to be uh, in a place to sit 10 GCSEs like their peers in schools so you as your as a parent potentially are you overstepping the line by taking away you're closing doors essentially well but if I as a parent decided to put my child into school I would be closing doors to them also you know every choice is opening some doors and, and closing others and I have thought about you know while I'm kind of making my children unteachable because they kind of are, right? They don't just sit there and think, oh, you're the expert, so I listen to you. If someone wants to tell them something, they may or may not be interested. And there's a relationship between them and that other person as to whether or not it is interesting enough with this person for me to give them my attention and my time. And I know that is different from, from a school model, right? Because the teacher has the authority and your job is to sit there and, and listen to them and respect them. Um, and I don't disagree with, you know, that situation necessarily. But I don't see why it needs to exist. Because already naturally in life, 
everything is a relationship, right? And there are people who know more than you in some areas and people who don't. And not always the way you expect. I definitely agree with your basic point, which is... <laughs> essentially, there is, there is no such thing as an open future or educating someone for an open future. Every decision you make or the child makes is going to close doors. The decision to go to a mainstream school... That is closing doors. Yes. You're basically signing away much of their childhood to being in classes, going through this experience. I think that's something I would like to say to to parents and future parents who are listening. Just because going to a mainstream school is the default doesn't mean you abdicate responsibility for the effects of doing that as a parent. You should be have your eyes open when you send your kids to school, basically, and try and be aware of what that means and aware of the consequences of that decision. Well, and I think it's difficult because I think some schools do say, well, no, the contract is, the social contract is you've given us the child and we're responsible for the education and your job is just to interact with the system the way it works. Mm -hmm. And on some levels, I agree with that, right? It's like, yeah. well, if you've put your child in that school and you don't like the way the school operates, whose decision is that? You know, do yeah. you change the system or do you make a different decision? But then at the same time, I think there's very little choice in this country. And based on location, because people are not free to move, or maybe more free now mm. after COVID, but still not so free to move to be able to live near a school that suits your ethos. Yeah. And there really aren't, there's not a lot of variety. True. Parents are responsible for the school they send their child to, but also they might have very limited options. Yes. And also they don't have a good window into what their choice of school looks like. Yeah. They've got offset ratings they've got GCSE results other than these very limited metrics they have not much of an idea what they're putting their children into and I guess I'd also mention some parents are in a better situation than others to find alternatives to mainstream schools it's not just private schools it's like home education I mean many of the children I teach their parents don't speak good English so it really would be difficult for them to prepare their children for life in the UK by home educating really sending them to school is is a good option really so let, let, okay let's take this you're you're bengali and your english is pretty shaky you've got two kids who were born in, in london like it would be you would be letting them down not to teach them english and your options for teaching them english really are sending to a mainstream school um how did you learn to speak english from parents and family and then I guess other children so being surrounded by people speaking the language yes so it's not necessary to be in school to be surrounded by people speaking the language if you're in the country that is true however if you don't speak English it's very difficult for you to form say a community of like-minded parents among whom the dominant language is English you're not particularly empowered to do that I guess I mean it is an ask on the parent right the parent has to take more responsibility for making sure that it happens. But I don't know, I could probably say the same thing about school. It's like, but if your child is there and they don't feel safe, how quickly are they going to learn? You know, whereas if they feel, okay, I've got my parent here, I feel secure, and there are a bunch of children here who are playing who look like they're doing something interesting and I'm interested in that, why would that not be just as fertile a ground for them to learn a different language? And, you know, case in point is we have a Ukrainian girl living here in our neighbourhood and she is picking up English so quickly. And yes, she's been to school, but she's only been to school for like, I don't know, a handful of days because she was also ill. 
And the rest of that time, she's just picking up from being amongst other kids mm. after school hours. Yeah. So I, yeah, I, I, chal I, I challenge know, I, that I view, can, right? I completely agree it's, with you. I mean, I think it's easier, possibly, because it frees up the parent to work, but then the parent also needs to learn the language. They do. I mean, being able to communicate with the people around you is incredibly important, right? Mm -hmm. So... They should also learn the language. However works for them, because obviously then there's the money issue of how they're financing themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, there are different ways to do it, right? No, School I, is not the only it's way. It's definitely not the only way, and it's maybe not even the best way. Going back a couple of steps, what I wanted to say was not all parents are empowered enough to make good decisions about their child's education, and state education should be a decent fallback for those who who can't do better. Okay, I am not against the state education system and I don't believe that home education is the answer. Um, I, like, n now after nine and a half years of, of, you know, thinking about this stuff in a non, within the system way, um, I'd, I just think, I think, the way we see education as this thing that you can give to someone else to do to a child doesn't make sense to me. But it doesn't mean that children don't need an environment to help them grow. I mean, like, you know, when you ask me that question of my role as a parent and the decisions that I'm making, and am I making, you know, am I being responsible for this child? And it's like, yes, actually, I agreed with everything you said. It's like, fundamentally, it's really important for me to do what's best for my child. And to me, that seems like creating an environment that is not taking them out of their natural habitat and then trying to sort of mimic that so that they learn how to be back in the natural habitat. It's like, don't take them out of it. Bring education to them. Absorb them into the world. Give them meaningful, useful experiences. Surround them by interesting people and allow them to have the choice of what they want to do with their time. Because how is that different to an adult's life? You know, th and there was something you said right towards the beginning of, you know, people thinking I can be, I will be happy when I have achieved this level of of um, job satisfaction or whatever. And I, it, it just doesn't make sense to me that you can go from a, I need to work towards this to be happy kind of attitude, and then think that at some point your attitude is going to change to, and I'm happy with what I have. To me, it makes sense that I'm happy with what I have creates opportunities for you to be even happier with what you have later but it's like you can't I don't think you can work towards a future and then think that the future will somehow become this place where you're now happy if you can't even be happy now if you don't see the inherent value in yourself right now why would it follow that you would in the future mm. you know what's going to change and so to me there's this like completely odd way of looking at things and I, and I used to think that way and I do still think that way at times and those are the times when I tend to not be happy mm. of oh I needed to do this I should have done this and oh am I failing my children you know thinking that instantly doesn't feel very nice but then that's a reminder to me of oh I've slipped into this way of thinking actually let me look at my children right now what are they doing is there an opportunity that they haven't got right now that they would really love right now not should I give them something that I think is good for them? But 
right now do they look like they would be ready and interested to try something else that wouldn't occur to them because they just don't know it exists that is my role and it is society's role to be that for children for them to see that there are interesting things to do to see that it is rewarding to be a part of your community to do things that affect other people in a good way and I don't think school is the environment where they see that mm. There are so many things I can pick up on there, and in a good way. I think mm. the, the educational utopia you kind of referred to at the beginning about what you'd like for your children sounds amazing. I would love to get into more like what that might actually look like. And you talk about d delayed gratification, and that is a huge thing in, in education, which sets us up to have that for our whole lives. Like, I'll be happy when I buy a house, I'll be happy when I retire. And that's almost self-evidently not the right way to live. Mm. But there's also the idea, there's a question of what's more what's more important out of happiness or doing great things. Because people achieve great things when they're not content with the way they are now. So there's certainly something problematic about just being totally happy about now, because then how do you, how do you have progress? Maybe we could start with that then. Do you not think, do you not think that being by very serene about the status quo you close the door on making a difference in the world so what you're saying is that in order to change something you have to be unhappy with it yes maybe we could go back back a step even more you want your children to be happy is that more important to you than them achieving something objectively good in the world so what i instantly relate that to is um, right now there's this narrative that our children are the ones who'll sort out the climate crisis. You know, there's this pressure that we need to raise the kind of children who wouldn't end us up in this situation in the first place. And can you imagine being a child that's raised in that environment if you don't achieve that? I mean, to me, that's feckin' awful. <laughs> um, but on the other hand, if you don't put the pressure on, they won't achieve uh, it. <laughs> the climate crisis is going to is going to happen. Oh, that's funny. Um, I I think I used to believe that too. I used to believe that you need to be uncomfortable and you need to be forced to grow. I really did believe that. At this point in the conversation, I challenged Mei Ling a little bit on whether feelings were all we needed. Clearly, there's many situations in life where we just need to listen to what we feel is right. But aren't there cases where we just need rationality? Indeed, aren't there cases where the rational mind will help us do a better job? Can we solve big problems in the world like poverty without using rationality? These are questions I'm really interested in, but we wanted to keep this conversation tight on integrity. So we're going to skip ahead a little bit. Whereas doing the right thing is something that also involves your compassion, also involves your feelings, but it does it in a way that is, in this moment, what is the right thing to do? I might feel like I don't want to, but that doesn't mean I shouldn't do it. Mm. And I might feel like I should do it, but that doesn't mean I should do it. So what is it that decides? How do I decide what to do? And that's what I'm cultivating in my children, mm. right? of this if you're constantly listening to that feedback mechanism within you mm. if everyone is doing that then we'll all be independently domic we'll, we this is the thing about laws right it's like it's great that we have found that there are common things we agree that we shouldn't do 
and we put the laws in there to protect people. But we shouldn't rely on those laws to govern our behaviour. We should be behaving in a way that we consider to be right anyway. Yes. It shouldn't be only because I'm going to be found out, only because the teacher caught me that I don't do that yes. and I try and get away with as much as possible. And that's where it becomes a little bit confusing where it's like if we're always creating this power structure where you will get caught if you do the wrong thing we're also telling them and if you don't get caught well then you can get away with it yeah I, I agree I think by this the systems we use to coerce children to make them do the right thing we're robbing them of the opportunity to form their own morality and act through integrity so I definitely definitely agree with that just before we move away from the whole rational compassion thing I'll throw one example at you there are people out there who they want to improve the world objectively and they've decided that the best way they see to do that is to fully engage with capitalism take a high paid job in a finance in the finance sector and give a chunk of their salary to the most effective causes i would i don't i'm not an expert on dharma but i'd say that's quite not dharmic because it doesn't really put you in harmony with the world when you're like I'm richer than everyone else, I'm a banker and I'm just all about profits. But you're doing this kind of calculation, you're like, but I'm actually definitely a net positive on the world because I'm saving human <laughs> lives every year with the money I give away. Well, so I think there's there's external behaviour and there's where people are coming from. And it's very easy for us to judge external behaviour, but do you know where that person is coming from? And I think everybody is working to the best that they can with their understanding of how things work. And that's integrity, right? Is doing what makes sense to you. So everyone's got integrity. Well, in a way, yes, you can't really act out of integrity with your understanding, but maybe your understanding is far removed from how things actually work. Maybe your understanding is, I'm this isolated person who needs to like earn as much money to feel secure, but to feel better about it, I'm going to give a portion away to charity. Plus, it also benefits me because I get a tax rebate. I think these people are genuinely motivated to help others, and that's, but that's see, often their I primary I would never reason. make that generalisation because I think generalisations are where we lose any sense of being able to do anything, right? Because because you can't you can't say that all the people are like that. I don't like this idea that everyone's got integrity. We've just got some people haven't quite got it straight about what what integrity. You know, I just no, no, don't, no. It's not that they've got a bad understanding integ of integrity. Some people are self-serving liars <laughs> with no integrity. Ah, oh. self-serving lies. Yes, some people behave in a very self-serving way, and why is that? It's because it's in line with how they understand the world to be. They have been taught and internalized that the world is dangerous, that they have to rely on themselves, that if they don't, they're gonna get eaten by someone else. That is integrity with the way they see the world. That's what I mean. They see the world that way and they think that that's real. And so they act accordingly. Okay, that's a good, you're making a good case, but I still don't think that's, that's not integrity, that's just acting in response to the way you see the world, which is sort of like... Do you not understand? Well, but that's saying, how what, I see integrity, because I don't think it's, it's, it's not tied in with any kind of moral view, because that is a human-made thing. Integrity is living of values. And some people... Yeah, they know what they, and know, what are their values? No, that's the thing. Some <laughs> people know what their values are, and they don't live them because it's too hard. Those are the people with no integrity. 
I'll take myself as an example, right? So I became vegetarian almost a year ago because I think it's cruel to raise animals in factory farms to eat. Hmm. It would be better if we never raised those animals and they never lived. But I still consume dairy products and eggs. That is a failure of integrity because I still <laughs> think I still well, think I'm on. causing suffering. But does that help you to see it that way? I'm just trying to prove the point that I'm just because I like make decisions based on my beliefs about the world doesn't mean I've got integrity. That makes the, the word integrity valueless. I fall short of my values in this meaningful way. So I, I'm not fully, I haven't got good integrity. Yeah, see, the thing is, I think I've lost this kind of necessariness to be right or for things to be solid like that. I'd, because really, the real question for me is, is this helpful for you? Yes. Like to have an intellectual argument with yourself? Hugely so. Why? And I've had, I basically, the last couple of years have been really important for me because I've changed my mindset a lot. I used to be like, oh, there's this truth I've discovered which is inconvenient to me, so I'm going to ignore it. Mm-hmm. So, for example, that one of those truths could be I'm an immensely wealthy person on a global level mm-hmm. and I could spend some of my wealth helping others who need it much more than me that's a truth I became aware of. And at first I was like, that's inconvenient because I kind of want all my money. Yeah. And so I ignored it. And same again with the with the veganism, vegetarian thing. Like there were times when I would sort of be like, yeah, I kind of understand that eating animals is probably quite a cruel thing, to, cruel and unnecessary thing to do. But I like fried chicken, so I'm not going to act on that. And the way I've changed over the last couple of years is I've started to actually believe that my values or these these inconvenient truths matter and that I can and should change my behaviour to be more in line with those truths. So I've done that in many areas of my life and it feels great because mm. I suddenly feel like ideas matter rather than being these sort of abstract things which I can choose to ignore because it feels good to. I've decided to think that they matter and suddenly all of life is more meaningful. If you believe in the power of ideas, everything gains colour and so I think it's really valuable to believe that the decisions you make matter and can be measured on some sort of meaningful moral framework. Uh-huh. The thing is, I also think that you've increased in integrity over the last 10 years from what I've heard. You know, you have taken radical decisions to raise your children differently from the norm because you believe it's right. Or did you just always do it because it feels good? Well, I want to go back to what you said about having meaningful ideas. And I get it. And at the same time, the thing that has given me the most integrity, I guess, is to see kind of all ideas as as not as meaningful as I thought they were. To see all my thoughts as not as important as I thought they were. And it's going to sound really contradictory... But it's like, like it's it's kind of the same, right? As as in the process of the last few years of moving out of society and then moving back in, there's this kind of de-identification with everything, and then there's a moving back in, but not a re-identification. There's a coming back into the world in a way where I'm not identified with everything and yet I see everything in a very different way that makes me feel much more intimate with it and much more close. 
and I care more. And yet, I don't see this kind of importance in it in the same way as I did before. I don't feel the weight of responsibility that I did before when I took it really seriously. For me, it seems like there's a, there's a stepping backwards that allows you to see the bigger picture of... So, like, i give you an example. When we moved to India, and I'm pretty radical feminist, and I went to India, and all the women stay at home and look after the kids, and all the men go out and work. Um, and even in some families where there's a more equal split, still the mother's job, right, to cook the food, to look after the home and to dress a particular way. And in the ashram specifically, they're very hot on moral dressing. Um, so the women have to cover up and you're supposed to wear a scarf as well. And it's freaking hot in Kerala. And at first I found that really quite strange, especially when you go swimming, the men are allowed to wear swimming shorts and the women have to wear this dress that covers you. And that, you know, could probably drown you if you go in the <laughs> sea. Um, and my Western ideology, my radical feminist mind got really angry about it and thought, this is not feminism, this is not okay. And then I quickly realized, well, this doesn't make me happy also. And it makes me really rude and mean to people around me. There must be some other way to see this where I can accept where people are, not necessarily agree with it, also perhaps see the way this culture might still be traumatizing itself with the way that the parents smack their kids and stuff and yet be okay with it in a way where I'm not coming in and saying I know the best way you should all change what you're doing and for me that really helped to let go of these ideas that I have you know the ideas themselves the identification with those ideas and trust that as a human being ah we're all where we are from where we've come from we're going to jump ahead in the conversation now. We talked a bit more about context and the limits of context. Are some things just wrong, regardless of the context? And are there limits to being led by the heart? Surely ideas are important. If there's a clash between what we feel to be right and what we know to be right, what do we do? Back to the conversation. So when I talk about f feeling happy, it's kind of a shorthand to this, this, I don't know what it is, but this voice or this mechanism within me that knows what I should be doing as opposed to what I think I should be doing or what I feel I should be doing. Mm. So when I talk about it like that, you know, feeling is the wrong word, it's more mm. the knowing. Yeah. And that is what I think we're always being trained to do is to listen to the knowing rather than listen to the, the feeling of the thought, mm. I should be doing this. Okay, does that, that help? That does help, actually. So, And, of course, there's a difference in how you used to operate. You used to be partly led by... The screaming voices yeah. that go, if I don't do this, I won't be accepted. Yeah, the ought to. Yes. You're letting go of those things you ought to do, ought to think. Yeah. And going with more like what you sort of know internally. Yeah, because then that feels. also gives me space to know what I should be doing, even when it feels like I would rather do this because yeah. I know other people will like it if I do that or I'm yeah. worried that this is going to happen mm -hmm. and it's to know um, and this is what I've got to do anyway. So this, you're increasing your integrity to this. It's maybe different from how I would think about integrity which is like um, how true you are to these intellectual mainly ideals. Mm. It's more like do things with which you're internally at peace and don't 
sort of do these things which you think on some higher level are better but stress you out yeah i think so in which case you've become you've you've increased your integrity have I? So, well according to your <laughs> metric i say okay so i because i i still want to kind of get to this point of like i don't find the word integrity useful if everyone's got it mm. there needs to be some comparison and i'd like i'd like to suggest that perhaps people who live their life based on what they ought to do have ought to do based on society's expectations especially have less integrity than you who is acting on what feels right yeah i guess yeah i mean it makes sense to talk about it that way right that integrity is actually you tethered to the knowing within you and that let's say there's a heap of conditioning Mm. on top of that that tells you how you should behave some of which is you know conditioning to behave in society which doesn't necessarily lead you down the wrong path right it could just be be respectful of your neighbors Mm. um that's not bad yeah but it is still conditioning and that is still a voice that's saying act a certain way Mm. whereas i believe that you could kind of have all of that conditioning and listen to this other voice and still behave in those ways but not be attached to the behavior you know it's not the behavior that you're really in in integrity with it's just you act that way because when you're connected with this Mm -hmm. then it's natural to act that way Hmm. i think broadly this sounds like a good way of operating i think the problem with uh, the problem that a lot of parents have and teachers have and school children have is as you've mentioned they're living the way they ought to live even when it causes them a lot of pain and they've lost contact with this sort of inherent sense of what's right and what's wrong yes and we've also we've started to internalize this idea that childhood should be difficult and painful yes that going to school should be it maybe not maybe not should be but it's probably going to be a massive chore that you've got to get through because it's for the greater good and I think that's or even nice. or even it has to be tough to prepare you for the real world. Yeah, yeah. So I actually think there's a lot definitely we can learn from that. I guess I but I still want to go to the limitations. So, um, so for example, um, the kind of approach to life you're talking about, if someone in India say was to adopt that approach, it wouldn't lead them to the conclusion that women and men should have equal status. So, you know, likewise, someone from the future. I don't know why it wouldn't, though. Because it might feel right to have those gender roles. It just, you know, some men are going to say, well, it feels right that I, I win the bread. Well, and but this is the other thing, right, of separating behaviour with the, with the knowledge. Because, because, you know, whether it's right or wrong is kind of irrelevant. It's whether it feels or whether that knowing inside is what says, yes, this works for us. Mm. You know, it might be that we choose to have what seem like gender stereotypical roles, but we're not attached to the gender stereotype. It's just that this is what works for us. Mm. I think that's a different way of looking at it, you know, and it's easy to judge it on the action and how it looks, but that's not where it's coming from. Yeah. And I think if more people look for where it's coming from, it would radically change the way you see the way people behave. Mm. Because the behavior can look the same, but where it comes from can be completely different. And f- and I think you can feel that. Yeah, You can feel the ease and the acceptance and the okayness where it comes from this place of non-attachment to mm. the behavior yeah. and the way it looks. 
I think I I understand that. You know, like so, like my children, if they're in a situation where there is someone at the front of the room teaching the the rest of the room, they understand the dynamic mm. and they fall into it, mm. and they don't feel any resentment or they don't, you know. I mean, with there's, there's a caveat to this. They do come away and they're like, but why were none of the other children listening? You know, why did the teacher have to keep telling them to shut up and be quiet?、Mm. Because why wouldn't you listen to the person that's talking? Why wouldn't you respect them?、Mm. So there's this whole other place, you know, that is outside of the structure, and yet in that structure they behave appropriately, and yet all the children who go to school and who are used to being in this environment don't behave the way that they're supposed to. Yeah, I still don't think I fully convinced myself that following <laughs> what feels good is is sufficient. No, I, and you shouldn't. I worry. Yeah, I basically worry that the way we and I live now, in the future, will quite rightly be viewed as retrograde, unethical, wrong. The, the, the way we could look any any society in history, you know, whether it's、um, societies with slavery, sexism, racism, and quite rightly say that was wrong. Doesn't mean we have to dismiss all the people that lived then as, as terrible people, but. We can go back, look back, and say that was wrong. And there's, it's almost certain that future generations will look back on the things we do, and some of them will be will be really long, really wrong. And what I'm, what I have started to believe is that rationality, our superpower, can help us be the people of the future now, and avoid some of those pitfalls. Like for example, veganism. What you mean, avoid being judged by future us? Not being judged. <laughs> it's just that we believe that a society without slavery is better than one with it. I believe that. And I'd like to get rid of whatever today's slavery is now, rather than just live with the knowing I've got a good excuse like well it was just my time and place. I would like to reach that sort of higher state, like a civil, you know, civilization right, without slavery. Right, in integrity with what you really know to be true. Right. Which is that no person is owned by anyone else. Right. I guess well, yeah maybe if you want to go with integrity, it's like okay, so people in、uh, in previous times maybe they had integrity to their value system, but their value system was insufficient. It was flawed. Same we have, might have now. I might have reasonable integrity within my system, but don't I also have some sort of responsibility to scrutinise my value system and and make it better if it's flawed?、Uh, like for example, most people eat meat, but really I probably shouldn't just leave it at that and be like, well, everyone else does it, so I'll just get away with it. I should be thinking, but is it right to eat animals who've been raised in factory farms? And I I'm I'm interested in this idea of like I would like. I think this is how progress happens. People would like to improve. They would like to to be better than they are now. Now, I think that could, to some extent, happen with what you say, which is be true to what feels right. There are so many things we do to each other which are bad, which feel bad, and if if we just follow what feels right on some deeper level, we'll do away with that. Sort of like manipulative relationships,、um, you know. Coercion and and systems of hierarchy—they don't necessarily stand up to that test of whether it feels right. So a lot of that we could do away with, but I still think I'd like to get rid of the next racism, whatever that is. And I think the rational mind is the one to do that. Well, you're entitled to your belief. <laughs> Maybe I should give you some more credit. I think, like as I said before, I think you you. Parents, teachers, students can learn a lot from you, because most of us haven't let go of these nagging feelings of like we ought to be doing this, and that's really bad for us. I get so one thing that comes to mind is in my coaching training, 
one of the things they said was people are always doing the best that they can with the understanding that they have and I I've seen that seems true to me as much as I can prove anything to be true that in a moment you know I might retrospectively look back and think I had other choices but actually in that moment what I did was all I could do and that was the best that I could do and it doesn't seem to make sense to me to look at that and think I should have done better because that improves nothing right all it does is increase the noise in my mind about how I wasn't good enough and how I'm not good enough so when I was taught that or when it when they said this to me and I looked into the world and thought is this true um, I saw myself with much greater compassion and I saw other people with much greater compassion because it's like it's not that we don't want to do what's best I think every human is born with that but there are factors and there are things that happen that shape what we what makes sense to us to do but that that changes and can always change and there's, there's always this possibility that we see something that radically shifts the way we've seen the world mm. that then changes what we're capable of yeah but until that happens you know we can intellectually think well it would be better if i did this but so many people want accountability coaches to get them to do the things they should do they don't really want to do them because it doesn't make sense to them you know like you're saying with the whole um eating meat thing it makes sense to you then to not eat meat and so you do it but it's not because intellectually you convinced yourself although you also had those thoughts there was something deeper in you that said okay let's do it but if someone doesn't have that okay let's do it it's not going to happen and you can't convince someone to get it on a deeper level that they should change their behavior behavior is downstream of the way we see things mm. so it, I think it's for me it doesn't seem like a productive place to spend time to think about but your behavior is that right is what you chose to do right or wrong it's like well it's kind of irrelevant it made sense to you at the time but why did that make sense to you let's look at why that made sense to you mm. and then let's see if that frame makes sense to you now because maybe if you look at why it made sense to you you might see oh maybe it's not like that so what you said sort of implies a level of determinism that things can only go the way they're going to go and that free will doesn't really come into it because everyone's going to make the decision based on where they're at that moment and I'm, I'm not sure where I actually stand on determinism and whether free will is a thing or not I don't know, you like to label things and then I sort of yeah. feel like I don't quite know what you're talking about anymore so determinism's <laughs> this idea that everything's predetermined and that although we might have the illusion of making choices if you really take into account everything in someone's mind, the outcome is predecided. What they're going to decide, what they're going to do is predetermined. You suggested that people are always going to do what feels right. And well, so, but that makes sense to them. Sorry, people are always going to do what yeah, makes sense. Yeah, because I, I just think because when we say about feeling, yeah. that that can be misconstrued, right? And I don't want people to come away thinking, oh, I just need to do what feels nice. Yeah. And then they end up, you know, doing really yeah, terrible yeah, yeah. things. <laughs> people are always going to do. What did you say? What what makes sense to them? What makes sense to them? Yeah. At least to me, that that it makes sense to me yeah. that frame. I don't know whether or not that's true. I guess what I'm interested in is what what leads to a better life: believing in free will or not. And I don't think I've resolved well, that uh, question. Yeah. Either. Well, and I I don't think beliefs are really the way forward. 
Well, you just having a better belief is like having a better lie. Mm. Well, you just you just said, and I, I agree with this on some level that it's not productive to look back on past decisions and and regret them because you, it's good to show compassion for your old self and understand that you you acted based on the, your context and that, that doesn't deserve to be agonized over i think there's definitely utility in that and i see people overthinking things they did in the past it's like just chill out like it happened you don't have to judge yourself too harshly but what you if you really do believe that you were always going to do whatever seemed right um then you're not really believing in in free will you're not really believing that you had a choice two ways and i think there's there's definitely well i think you do have a choice as to whether or not you're listening to that or not you know, if you're listening to what you know, or if you're listening to what you think you should be doing, mm. or you're listening to the feeling that just feels so intense that you have no no idea what to think and you just panic, I think that's where the free will comes into it. But I, but I also, but I also think that, you know, there's not always a space. Like, let me give you an example. There was this one point where I was so angry that there was no space for me to think, oh, I'm feeling angry, that's interesting. It was, I'm angry because of this. Mm-hmm. And, or this person. And then I spend like the next 10 minutes ranting about this person. And I think I didn't really have the choice, right? Because I wasn't thinking, there wasn't space for there to be any kind of inspired thought of mm. just, just be calm. You yeah. know, or just don't do anything for a while, and I—that's what I mean when there's, you know, there there is free will when there is space for it. But if there's no space for it, how could you possibly make a decision? Yeah. If you're on a hamster wheel of, I must get my kids to school, I must go to work, I must do this, my boss will be unhappy with me, I need to go and get the shopping, I've got all these things I need to do. When is there space to ever make any decisions? Yeah, there's no space. Yeah, I get that. I think for me, I'd call that sort of agency it's nice to claim okay. agency over your own life and if you do find yourself in this cycle of responsibilities and habits and you lose yourself because you just respond to everything that happens in an automatic way i think that's yeah, a really react exactly I think, yeah, yeah i think that's a terrible way to live and many many people do it yeah <laughs> i think we're trained to do it <laughs> yeah well it seems that everyone has this problem with um taking on too much and ending up being endlessly busy with things that they typically don't really like doing and they can't seem to step off. They can't seem to let go of, of many of these things. But that busyness that you point to, I do think we're trying to do that from school because of our, our agency over our time is taken away and we mm. have to look busy and we have to look like we're doing the right things. Yeah. And I had to point out to someone the other day, you know, when they asked what my kids were into and I gave them a list of stuff and then I said, but one thing that they also do is they have a lot of time to not do anything. And my daughter pointed out to me last week, she goes to forest school and she loves it. It's one day a week. And they're out in the woods and they're doing various activities. And she says, I love it, but I would like to go to the woods not during a forest school day because I just want to do my own thing. And we're like, oh, did you feel pressurized to do the other things? Did they make you? And she's like, no, no, I always had the choice. But because it's offered, I feel like I want to do it. But then she's also aware that when she's in the woods by herself, there's this other way of being, right, that's that's just so much more intrinsically motivated and having time to be in touch with that 
and to really allow that to control your day and find that you haven't really done anything you can talk about to people I think is really important to then as life you get more and more opportunities and more and more abundance to be able to make choices of and what would I like what would really be great for me mm. because there is abundance and there is so much to do and when you live in a city like London my god you could be busy every moment mm. does that benefit you does that benefit the world maybe not yeah there's a very interesting thought there that if we want to think about how we can raise children better we can look at the problems that adults have now and maybe think about where they came from we're not so different right yeah yeah so well yeah so the problem that we mentioned which is adults find themselves so busy they haven't got time to do the things they want mm. and they don't or to even figure out what they want right exactly yeah they're always working and doing how come they're already in this full-time work world and they don't know who they are and they don't know what they want what yes. kind of an education system do we have where we have all these adults who are then supposed to raise other children into the mm. world and yet they have no sense of themselves and they yes. have no sense of what's important and just to be specific the kind of people i think we're talking about are people whose lives are chiefly made up of work and passive leisure activities so being at work and say watching tv consuming media um and chores like i feel like a lot of people's lives are mainly made up of those things and that's that's not inevitable and so yeah we can look at those people and think what was missing in their child what could they have had in their childhood which would have empowered them as adults to feel like they really did own their time and i think what you mentioned about your daughter in the wood she had time to do nothing and had to make choices about how to spend that time had to could make <laughs> could make <laughs> that reminds me of one, one thing i want to fit in actually which is this idea of consent because um obviously we bumped into each other on on wednesday yeah we were at the screening of a, a movie about the school called xp in the north of england and it's a quite a radical state-funded school and one of the things they do is is when children start the school at the age of 11 they they don't go to school they go to a week-long outdoors trip in north wales where they have to do all of these activities you know for for first first of all they're spending a week away from home for the first time they're having to like walk up mountains they abseil down a mountain they're you know they're spending time outdoors camping in a tent they're doing these things which many of them find very challenging and very difficult and you can it really comes across in the film that they're growing as individuals these challenges are helping them um, rethink what what's possible rethink what they can do and they're also making connections with their future with their new teachers and with their peers and their new school so it certainly comes across I think very few people would argue that the trip is a bad thing it looks like a great start to a new chapter of life but I was very interested with your take which was it's great and everything but like I'm not sure if they all consented to that and that I found was really interesting so did did you feel do you feel then that if you're offering 11 year olds this cool camping trip to start a new school you really should get their consent first yeah i mean why aren't they involved in co-creating it why don't they get to decide how they'd like to spend their first week at, at school away and and why do they have to be away from their families the thing that really got me and i may be the only person that feels this way right this is purely my perspective 
was why they needed to be separated from their families in order to form strong bonds with their crew, you know, the small group that they're their tutor group thing. Um, to me, I didn't see why it had to be that way. Why couldn't the whole family be included in that? Why do you have to alienate the children from their family? Or, you know, because that's the way I see it, right? To separate the, the children from their safe, known family environment and put them in another group, which then they start referring to as their family. I find that a little bit creepy. I don't see why it's impossible to have your wider society and the family together creating the right environment for the kids to thrive. Well, e even a good family can hold you back with the expectations. So I know from experience that starting a new school or going to university or even just hanging out with friends, it's it allows you to grow because it allows you to try out different identities. And even, you know, I've had a very good supportive family, but family, your family's expectations of you do hold you back. And once you're free from those, even if it's for a few days, you start to realize, oh, actually, I can be like this. No one's looking at me weird when I do this because they don't know what I'm capable of. And so I think there's definitely a good case for giving, uh, letting children be in different groups of people. So yeah, and I'm not that. saying that they shouldn't be, but that comes back to the consent piece. It's just like, mm. well, if the kid was offered that and they're like, yeah, actually, I'd quite like to see what happens, you know, and they, they're given as much support as mm. needed to make that decision to really understand what decision they were making, yeah. then that's brilliant. Well, here's what I would say is, this might not be true, but if you did give children a say in whether this trip was away from home and the, the nature of the trip, you might end up having some children say, well, I'd rather stay with, in my house with mum and dad because I feel safer. And I'd rather not do that camping in the woods because it, it sounds uncomfortable. And I'd rather not climb the mountain because that, that sounds hard. And they would end up not having these really enriching experiences. Correct. Because, because their shallow preconception of what it would be like has blocked them from doing it. I see, I don't see it that way. I see that as them expressing what they know and us as their partnership respecting that mm. and allowing them that unique path in life i don't see that there's this and this is the best way for you to grow thing mm. and in fact i was talking to a friend yesterday who said that they were anxious through a lot of school and then at some point they weren't anymore and mm. i said oh what made the difference and they said well actually i realized how much i was missing out on and so I decided to to put myself in more situations. Mm. How good is that, right? To me, yeah. that's brilliant. He was given as much safety as he needed until he realized for himself, if I keep doing this, I'm missing out on the things I want to do. Mm. But I want to do them, so I'm going to change my behavior. Yeah. And that is a whole different way of relating to the world than this is good for me, so I should do it. Mm. I should do this to myself even though everything in me is telling me this is awful mm. and I don't like it. I'm going to make myself do it because I'm going to grow and be a better person. Yeah. I just don't think that that's an, a, a nice way to go around it. Mm. I think what I would, what that makes me think of is um, the idea of spoiling a child, which I know you're not going to like. <laughs> I'm just trying to think about what, 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 if you're trying to boil down, what does it mean when someone says spoil a child? I think spoiling a child is a combination of um, low expectations and low accountability for your child. Maybe it's more than that, it's sort of giving them more than they need. 
as well. Um, but in a way, if you let these kids design their trip and decide whether it's really away from home, I'd say you're at risk of spoiling them and you're denying, you're, you're denying them an opportunity to grow. So I think as, as the adults, as the parents and the teachers planning the trip, you've definitely got a responsibility to make sure the trip is safe. And that you can have a lot of different definitions of safety, you know. So you're definitely responsible to make sure it's safe. But once you've met this sort of base baseline level of safe, and you're fairly sure it's going to be an enriching experience, I think you're justified in saying, "Well, we're the professionals here. We're the parents. We're the adults. We are going to say, children, we've made this thing for you, and you're going to do it." I'm sure earlier on you were saying something about how do you follow your integrity yeah. when, like, the society norm is such and such. And that later on we look back and we think, why was it like that? Mm. And to me, that points to that very way of thinking. Yeah. Where you give up, you take away that child's agency. And and to be honest, the way I see it, it's like that child has, has, less, had, has had less time being indoctrinated than the rest of us. So probably they're truer to a natural way of being than we are. Mm. Why would you take away that or dishonor that mm. in them? in order to just kind of, in order to meet the way we see the world now collectively. Why would you not honor that and think, how can we adapt to be true to all of you as individuals and create something that will help you to grow? Mm-hmm. You know, why can't it also be fun and affirming and not, and only the level of risk that you feel safe taking? Why not? Because, you know, because life is unpredictable, right? Life is always going to create situations anyway that are out of our control that may be well beyond what the child wants to handle. Mm. And we can't do anything about that. But if we can do something about it, why wouldn't we choose to do something that nurtures that innate responsibility, that innate integrity in a child? Mm. How can that not be for the good of everyone? Yeah. I think I'm on the fence on this. I know I'm arguing against you, but I think I'm on the fence. And I do want to link this to a broader idea that I think a lot of the discourse in education is about curriculum, what we teach. And there's not nearly enough discussion about how, and you're interested in the how, in terms of um, how do you educate? You're very much in favor of a sort of hands-off approach to education. You're not sitting the child down in the chair and delivering the content to them. You say, you're probably saying the content of the education is not actually so important as the way in which the child engages with the education. Mm-hmm. And I, I, on that, in that broad sense, I think I'm very much in agreement with you. I think we need to think much more about how the child engages with an education. And when you think about the consequences of the current status quo, which is they sit, they listen, we tend to assume that that's somehow neutral on the child, but actually it has deep well, it's the effect. hidden curriculum. Right. Yeah. And no one talks about it. I mean, yeah, maybe well, how they, would you depending on which... How would you describe the hidden curriculum? Well, there's a power structure. And you fit into that power structure. And and also now there's the added thing that many schools are businesses. So actually, who are the primary stakeholders? It's not the children. When people say the system isn't working, that's not strictly true. The system really is working. But it's not their primarily for the benefit of the children and in my less generous days I think that the system um, like takes our goodwill and our want 
of a good thing for our future, you know, um, that we want the best for our children. It takes that and it manipulates it. And it uses that to keep our children in childcare so we can keep working and keep the economic system going. So school that way really works. And as an indoctrination system to, you know, pass on what we consider to be what children need to learn, it works very well. And it does it within the structure of, and this is how you fit into society. You are a small cog in a massive machine. You have no real power. You have no real say. Your job is just to get on and do what you need to do with minimum fuss. Don't attract any negative consequences. Maybe, you know, you might get a little bit of carrot and stick every now and then. But it's essentially it, right? It's like prepare yourself for the world of a job for the rest of your life. That's life. And if you don't live in, in a country like ours, if you live somewhere else, then school is seen as a saviour. This one place where you can get educated and you get indoctrinated with this way of relating to the world, you know, which deliberately takes you away from your family, takes you away from your community and society and tells you that that's inferior and really you have to um, respect the hierarchy and the people above you know best. You don't know anything and the planet is worth nothing. <laughs> Thanks, that is an amazing summary of the hidden curriculum that I really couldn't have come up with myself. and. There is a lot I can pick up on, but I think that's a kind of good place to park our conversation for now. And I hope this is the first of more than one. We've talked about integrity and what that means. We've talked about letting go as a parent or a teacher of how we think sh things should be done and kind of following a, an inner compass. And I mean, if, if we do have a future conversation, I guess I'd like to look more at like concretely what can be done how can we improve education you've said you don't know what's best for everyone you're not trying to push this one vision of of how we should do things but what structural changes would push us or get us going in the right direction and i also would like to kind of get to the bottom of um parents because it at first glance some of your ideas seem to rest on the assumption that parents are well placed to make good decisions for their child and i think there's a lot of cases in which that doesn't seem to be true. So how can we empower parents to make better decisions, both by educating them, let's say, or both by changing their circumstances so that they're able to, to make better choices? Um, that's something I'd like to come back to. <laughs> There's a lot there. But I really enjoyed this conversation. Mei Ling, thank you for being on the show. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Let's see what happens. That was Mailing Thomas. I found this such an energising conversation. We recorded on a sunny day, and usually missing out on nice weather would make me feel frustrated. But after our talk, I was buzzing. Whether we've ever put them into words or not, I bet that most of us have had struggles with the expectations of school and the world of work and parenthood. It's thrilling to think, as Mei Ling does, that we can just opt out of these expectations and live in the way that makes sense to us. We got to the core of some thoughts I've been having. The last two years have been a journey in integrity for me. I've started living my beliefs as if they actually mattered. I mentioned vegetarianism in the interview. I've also started giving some of my money to charities I think are effective. I'm doing better when it comes to intellectual ideas, but to me 
Mei Ling represents a journey towards spiritual integrity, which I have yet to begin. She talks about society's damaging expectations for parents, that they should push their children to behave, to respect authority, to study for tests, that they should bend their child to fit their idea of success. As a teacher, I understand this pressure. Today's educational system imposes the same cookie-cutter idea of success on every child. It harnesses stress and anxiety to motivate children to study for exams, and it operates on such a large scale that it requires an impersonal system of rewards and punishments to keep things ticking. I know that it's wrong, but it's not an intellectual knowing. It's something deeper. I just know that human relationships should be based on love. Love is something of a taboo in education. Teachers are supposed to care about their students, to support them unconditionally, but to love them, wouldn't that mean actually respecting them as individuals, valuing their thoughts and opinions? Wouldn't it mean being vulnerable? These things aren't compatible with the school culture of absolute adult authority, where teachers need to make students obey them. So, I haven't heard teachers use the word love. Until recently. Something happened at school this week that stayed with me. It was an assembly to celebrate the last day of lessons for all of the 18-year-old students in my school. A senior staff member gave a speech. They talked about when they were very ill with COVID, to the point that they thought, this might be the end. They thought to themselves, do all the people that I love know that I love them? And they said to a room of over 100 students, I want you to know, I love you, not just for the person that you're going to become, but for the person you are right now. Regardless of your academic success or whether you work hard, I love you. It was a moving moment for me because I know that young people often don't get this message that their worth is intrinsic, that they're loved regardless of whether they meet our expectations. It was also a confusing moment for me. My school often doesn't feel like a school of loving teachers. We're still expected to chide students for not adhering to the dress code or, or not working hard enough, etc, etc. I mean, can you even have a loving institution? And love raises other questions. If parenting is going to be based on unconditional love for one's children, and if the teacher has unconditional love for their students... Will they neglect their duty to help the children to grow? The way we think about growth is to identify a lack and then do something to address it. If you really love who a person is at this moment, aren't you blind to their flaws and, and therefore not the right person to help fix them? Now that I've blown open this whole thing about love, I'm going to end the episode. I really hope Mei Ling and I can come back to this and much more when we speak again. The thought for the week is, is love a word that we don't speak enough. See you next time.